Good morning, everyone. Happy Epiphany. Uh, today is Epiphany Sunday, and Epiphany, of course, is part a recognized day in the church year, uh, essentially a celebration of when the gospel connected with the Gentiles. So it's Epiphany, although today I'm not preaching a specifically Epiphany-related sermon. In fact, we are back into the Sermon on the Mount, and I'd very much like to pray before we open the word together. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we praise you for a new year. Uh, We give you thanks, Lord, that you are faithful to the faithless. Uh, Lord God, that you are such a God that you went and died for the ungodly, and you died for your enemies. Lord, your grace and your mercy are so lavishly magnificent and abundant and stupendous. And I pray, Lord, that over 2019 for each of us, that our jaws spiritually would just continue to drop as we consider you and your greatness, your majesty, your supremacy. May you become more and more our treasure uh, this year is my prayer. And now, Lord, as we open the Sermon on the Mount again and listen to Jesus, I pray that each of us would listen to Jesus uh, a lot more than Brent. And, Lord, that you would have your way and uh, massage hearts, perhaps, that have grown calcified and hard. Uh, Bring us along in our faith journey, even in this hour, as we expose ourselves to your word once more. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Last Sunday, we touched on the importance of Matthew 5, verses 17 through 20. We talked about how those four verses of the Sermon on the Mount are really pivotal in our understanding, not only of the entire Sermon on the Mount, but also... They are crucial for us in our understanding of the mission of our Lord Jesus Christ. Last week, we managed to look at half of this very important passage at verses 17 and 18. Uh, This morning, we will explore the remaining two verses, uh, verses 19 and 20. And again, you're invited to have a Bible open in front of you, whether in text or on a device. So last Sunday, we beheld... Jesus, telling us in verses 17 and 18 how he himself came to fulfill the entire Old Testament. And we also saw in those verses how Jesus clearly reverences and respects and glories in the divine authority of the Old Testament. And all of this, we pointed out on a practical note, is of paramount importance for our own reading of the Bible, for our own approach to Bible study. This morning, as we come to verse 19, we notice that the initial word in the verse is the word, therefore, and as preachers like to say, we need to ask the question, what's the therefore, therefore? Now, when you and I use the word therefore in everyday speech, the word is normally connected with what we have just said, right? 
I like ice cream. Therefore, because I like ice cream, I'll go out and buy some. Here in verse 19, it's the same sort of concept. When Jesus says, therefore, he's connecting with what he's just said. And the words that have just come out of his mouth in verse 18 were words about the high authority, the ongoing authority of the Old Testament. As we pointed out last Sunday, with the coming of Jesus, the Old Testament is taken up in him and now needs to be interpreted through him and by him. But that doesn't mean that the Old Testament has lost its force or lost its validity. So in verse 18, Jesus exalted the ongoing authority of the Old Testament, and now he continues in verse 19. He says, therefore, so in other words, with the the divine authority of the Old Testament in view, or because of that divine authority of the Old Testament, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments, and teaches others to do the same, will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Now, we need to spell things out a little here and go slow with our interpretation of the words of our Lord in this verse. Again, I have to harp on this because it's so important for our walk of faith. We've already seen, especially in verse 17, how Jesus is the fulfiller and the fulfillment of the entire Old Testament, right? With the advent of Jesus, with his coming to this earth, Our reading of the Old Testament and our interpretation of the Old Testament and how we apply the Old Testament to our lives can never be the same as it was in the days prior to the coming of Christ. In these days that we live in after the birth, life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, the Old Testament is now read in light of him. With Jesus as the center and Jesus as the filter. The Old Testament is now to be approached as it is taken up in Jesus and as it is taught by Jesus. We now obey the Old Testament teaching by conforming to Jesus and his word. Are you with me this morning? I think here of the first words of the book of Hebrews. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. Friends, Our concern now as Christians who live after the first coming of Christ, who live after his cross and resurrection, is what Jesus does with the Old Testament, what he says 
about the Old Testament and what his appointed apostles say about the Old Testament, how they interpret it. And in this Sermon on the Mount, very shortly, in coming weeks, Jesus will teach Old Testament. In verses 21 down through uh, verse 48 especially, he will teach Old Testament, but what we will notice is that he will recenter the teaching and he will authoritatively remove misinterpretations of the Old Testament that were current in his day. Again, the point, we need to listen to Jesus' interpretation of the Old Testament as Christians and apply that to our lives. So that we return to verse 19. Having said all that, again, listen to Jesus. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. When Jesus says that, He expects us to understand, based on what he's just said in verse 17, about how he himself fulfills the Old Testament. He expects expects us to understand, based on that, that he is the final teacher and the final expounder and the fulfillment of the commandments that he mentions here. Jesus is calling his disciples in this verse to do and to teach Old Testament law as filtered through him and as interpreted by him. So as an example, so we can wrap our minds around this, Jesus will take the seventh commandment from Exodus 20 verse 14, you shall not commit adultery. He takes up that seventh commandment, beginning at verse 27 of the Sermon on the Mount, chapter 5, and Jesus will authoritatively teach us what? He will teach us the heart and the spirit of that commandment. And he expects us to obey his teaching of what the seventh commandment is and what it means. The seventh commandment, folks, is still in force, along with the other commandments, but now we listen to what Jesus says about it, and we apply the word of Jesus. But then on the flip side of the coin, here and there in the Gospels, we find Jesus telling us that some of the Old Testament laws are no longer in force, or at least not in force in the precise way that they had been before he came. An example here would be the temple tax. Exodus 30, verses 13 through 16, gives laws from God for paying a sanctuary tax. Notice we don't enforce that at Snowden. Over in Matthew 17, verses 24 through 27, Jesus hints, very strongly he hints, that we are now free from paying such a tax. It's no longer valid to pay a temple tax. 
And why? Well, because, friends, Jesus has come. And Jesus, in his own words, is greater than the temple. The old bricks and mortar temple is no longer central in the purposes of God. Jesus is central. He himself is the temple. Jesus came and in fact he prophesied the destruction of the old physical temple. And so we read the Exodus 30 law about temple tax now through the filter of Jesus Christ. We read it now according to the coming of Jesus and we read it in light of his person. Do you see this? We must learn to read the Old Testament in the clear light of Jesus. Of course, we could multiply examples here of how the Old Testament should be interpreted in light of Jesus Christ, but the main point, again, is this. Jesus expects us. Are you a disciple of Jesus? Jesus expects us as his disciples, to still read the Old Testament, yes, to still apply the Old Testament, yes, to still teach it, yes, as we do on Thursday nights, spiritual commercial. But we need to do those things in light of him, with him as the filter, to to read and to apply the Old Testament in light of his authoritative fulfillment of it and his authoritative teaching of it, which he handed down to the apostles. If we do that, says Jesus in verse 19, we will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. But if we fail to do that, if we fail to respect and obey one of the least of these commandments, And if we lead others to do the same, then it's not necessarily that we will be excluded from the kingdom, according to this verse. It's that we will be assigned a low position or a low place in the kingdom. We will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. So in this verse and in other places, like in Matthew chapter 20, Jesus suggests that there are gradations, there are distinctions in the kingdom of heaven. The obedient ones who honor the word of Christ will be called great. The disobedient in the kingdom will be called least. And then we have verse 20. Jesus continues by saying, he's talking to me and he's talking to you. For I tell you, Brent, for I tell you, fill in your name, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, You will never enter, never enter the kingdom of heaven. Did you hear what Jesus just said to you? Again, he says to you and he says to me, we need to hear it again. I tell you, unless your 
Righteousness surpasses, exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees. Friend, you will never, ever enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, we need to consider this. First of all, just to point out here, Jonathan Pennington, in his book on the Sermon on the Mount, calls this verse the thesis statement for the rest of the central section of the sermon down through chapter 7, verse 12. So we know that verse 20 is very, very important, especially it's important to the long section that will now follow it. But aside from that... What Jesus says here to us in verse 20 has definite shock value about it. Does it not? Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Wowzers! Let's talk again about the scribes and Pharisees. The scribes, as we said last week, were professionals. They were professional scholars of God's law. Charles Quarles has described the scribes this way, as highly trained experts in the interpretation and application of the law. Highly trained experts in the interpretation and application of the law. The scribes began their training to be scribes as children and they were only formally ordained at the age of 40. They were the ones who were called upon to advise the Jewish judicial branch called the Sanhedrin on matters related to the law of God. So friends, the scribes were certainly no slouches when it came to the interpretation and the application of Scripture. And the Pharisees, they were a group within Judaism who were absolutely 100% committed to the meticulous, close observance of the law of God in a society where many were by no means committed to the meticulous and close observance of the law. Both of these groups, the scribes and Pharisees, were committed to the same basic ideal, which was the intimate study and the close observance of the law of God. And we must point out here, their intention was a good intention. After all, what was wrong with the Pharisees and scribes having a desire, as they did, that religious faith permeate and saturate every area of life. It was a good intention. What was wrong with the Pharisees and scribes promoting the law of Moses as a living book, not to be simply relegated to collect dust on a shelf somewhere, They had good intentions. What was wrong about caring as much as they did care for the careful observance and the practice of God's law? 
Chris Wright has drawn attention to the fact that Jesus actually shared several values with the scribes and Pharisees. For example, the Pharisees had a deep desire that people be holy, that people live holy. So did Jesus. The Pharisees loved the Torah. They loved Genesis through Deuteronomy, and they assumed that the way to holiness was to be found in the Torah. Well, so did Jesus. See, friends, it's easy for us to very quickly write off the scribes and Pharisees as hypocritical, legalist, misdirected, totally at odds in every way with Jesus. But it's not quite that simple. In fact, in their time, we need to understand, in their time, the Pharisees and the scribes were respected greatly by the Jewish society around them. They were respected as untouchable in their holiness. They were respected by the broader Jewish community as being the best interpreters of Scripture and the most devout in their application of Scripture. Remember this, that the scribes and Pharisees were the people who observed that there were 248 commandments in the law and 365 prohibitions, and they aspired to keep all of them. These were the people who also were deadly serious, deadly serious in their observance of every detail of what we call the oral law, the oral Law. Just to give us an idea here, in the written form of the oral law, there are, get this, 240 paragraphs on appropriate behavior during the Sabbath. In just one of those 240 paragraphs, there's a list of behaviors that were prohibited on the Sabbath. Things like sowing seeds, Plowing, baking, tying a knot, putting out a fire, lighting a fire, striking something with a hammer, and so on and so forth. And then you have many other paragraphs that expand on those various prohibitions in great detail. With regard to tying knots on the Sabbath, if you were a camel driver or a sailor, you must not tie a knot on the Sabbath. But if you wanted to tie a knot for a hairnet, or if you wanted to tie a knot on a sandal, or on a belt, that was permissible. And a further stipulation was that it was just as forbidden to untie a knot as to tie one, etc., etc., etc. The Pharisees, friends, were people who sought to observe all such rules with meticulous attention so that when Jesus comes along in Matthew 5.20 and says to his audience, says to us, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. 
wow. I am pretty confident that there would have been some audible gasps and a few shocked sort of mumbles in the audience as Jesus preached the Sermon on the Mount. We are to have a righteousness that exceeds or surpasses the scribes and Pharisees. Otherwise, we will never enter the kingdom of heaven. How is it even possible to have such a righteousness? The scribes and Pharisees were like Wayne Gretzky. Sorry, Habs fans. They were like Wayne Gretzky when it came to the practice of the law. Nobody could touch them. And so what is Jesus talking about here? Well, I think the key to our understanding of verse 20 is the word righteousness. We must focus on the word righteousness here. The question we need to ask is, and I hope you're with me here, the question is, what sort of, of righteousness is Jesus after? What kind of righteousness is Jesus demanding from us here? And he is demanding a righteousness from us. We've already drawn a brief sketch of the righteousness that the scribes and Pharisees were famous for. When you boil things down, Theirs was a righteousness whose focus was largely on performance. The meticulous and formal performance of detailed ritual requirements. Theirs was an excessive concentration, listen, on the letter of the law, and obedience to that letter. The Pharisees were experts on details and actions and doing and carrying out. But despite all their careful external observances, the scribes and Pharisees really missed a few things. They so often missed the greater and more weighty principles that God was teaching that lay underneath those details of the laws that they cared so much about. And they also missed just how important it was to God that the motives and attitudes of the heart be pure and holy while one is seeking to obey external details. We might say that the scribes and Pharisees cared way too much about doing at the almost total neglect of being. I want to say that again. We might say that the Pharisees and scribes cared way too much about doing at the almost total neglect of being. And friends, if you and I are not prayerful and careful, we can be just like them. 
The righteousness that Jesus is after in verse 20. The righteousness that we need in order to enter the kingdom of heaven must exceed that of the scribes and Pharisees. In fact, the righteousness that Jesus is after, and I want you to listen closely, the righteousness that he is after is different in kind than the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees. We need to see this here. The righteousness that Jesus requires is different in kind than the Pharisees. See, Jesus does not expect us to beat the Pharisees at their own game here. In other words, he does not want us to out-Gretzky the Gretzky scribes and Pharisees who were so highly rigid and so highly meticulous in their conformity to the letter of the law. No, what Jesus is after is a righteousness of the heart. A righteousness of the heart. That is the surpassing righteousness that he is after. That is the righteousness that exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees. As John Stott once put it so well, the righteousness which is pleasing to God is an inward righteousness of mind and motive. An inward righteousness of mind and motive. I know that I will never compete with guys who tithe mint, dill, and cumin from their gardens, as the Pharisees did. But I need not compete with them in that way. Jesus is after a different kind of righteousness. And my friend, you will never attain to the mold, the mold that some modern day Pharisees want to force you into. And neither do you have to, and neither do you want to. Jesus is after a different sort of righteousness than Pharisaic righteousness, whether it's Pharisaic righteousness in the first century or now in the 21st century. Daniel Doriani, in his commentary, I'm going to get real up close and personal now. Daniel Doriani, in his commentary on the Sermon on the Mount, issues something of a warning to us to watch out for modern-day Pharisees with their misdirected ideas of righteousness. You'll be able to spot modern-day Pharisees because they will be concerned to forbid what is permissible. To forbid what is permissible, like playing cards. Or, says Doriani, the modern-day Pharisee may also require what is advisable. Again, the modern-day Pharisee may require what is only advisable, like morning devotions. 
It's advisable to have morning devotions, yes, but it's not required. Watch out for the modern-day Pharisee. Another way that the modern-day Pharisee might reveal himself or herself is by being constantly critical and judgmental of the immorality and the dishonesty and the violence and the confusion of the society around them with a self-righteous sort of air about them. Like the Pharisee in Jesus' parable in Luke 18, God, I thank you that I am not like other men. That's what the Pharisee says. Beware the modern-day Pharisee, and you and I need to beware of becoming one ourselves. Amen? The modern-day Pharisee is the person who deep down is convinced that performance is what gains the favor of God. Watch out for them, and may we examine ourselves lest we become one. And I mean that very seriously. God is after a different sort of righteousness from you and from me than what the modern-day Pharisee is prescribing. What is the righteousness that pleases God? The righteousness that pleases God is a righteousness that is focused on the spirit of the law, not merely the letter. The righteousness that brings glory to God is a righteousness that starts with internal matters of the heart before it concentrates on the externals. The righteousness that brings glory to God is a righteousness that is concerned with character and not solely with the keeping of commands. This is the righteousness that pleases God. God. And friends, I want to remind you again that the stakes are so very high in all of this. Jesus says in verse 20 that without having this sort of heart righteousness that I tried to describe, doesn't matter how many Sundays you've come to church consecutively, doesn't matter how much you tithe into the offering plate, Without the righteousness that I just tried to describe, Jesus says here, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. See how high the stakes are. This righteousness of the heart or this righteousness of mind and motive is not optional if you would enter the kingdom of heaven. Well, okay then, pastor. I can certainly see how absolutely vital it is to have this righteousness that Jesus requires. How do I come by it? How do I get it? Well, the first place in the scriptures that I would point you to again is right here in the Sermon on the Mount a little earlier, back at verse 6 of this fifth chapter where Jesus has already told us that righteousness is, listen, righteousness is a gift from God. In that fourth beatitude, which is Matthew 5, 6, Jesus talked about hungering and thirsting for righteousness. 
right? Because we're poor in spirit. Because we despair of our own righteousness. Hungering and thirsting after righteousness and then being sated or satisfied with righteousness, a righteousness that is given by God himself. Friends, it's God who in grace gives the righteousness that Jesus demands in Matthew 5.20. I want to say that again. It's God who in grace gives the righteousness that Jesus demands in Matthew 5.20. I think Leon Morris is helpful here when he puts it like this. Morris says, the believer's righteousness is a given righteousness. Hallelujah. Nowhere do we get the idea that the servant of God achieves in his own strength the kind of living that gives him standing before God. And thank God for that. You need, and I need, oh, how we need the righteousness that Jesus demands in Matthew 5.20, and the only source of that righteousness is God. There's nowhere else to go but God for the righteousness that God demands. And so the very, the, the very best place for you and I to be in our lives as 2019 begins and at all times is the place of the tax collector in Jesus' parable who cries out, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And in fact, in the Greek of that verse, it's God, be merciful to me, The sinner. The best place that you and I can be is the place of Matthew 5.3. Poor in spirit. Recognizing that before God, we got nothing. To slightly paraphrase what Jerry Bridges wrote in his excellent book, The Discipline of Grace... We must freely and desperately acknowledge, freely and desperately acknowledge that we have no righteousness of our own and receive it as a gift from God. As we close now, may the words of our Lord Jesus Christ continue to ring in our ears and in our hearts and minds with understanding that has been given from the Spirit. Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees and scribes, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Thank God for his gift. Let's pray. Father in heaven, it is a truth as we read our Bible from cover to cover that what you command, you give. We are so thankful this morning that you are our God, that you are the living God who is there 25 hours a day, 366 days a year. You never leave us or forsake us. You are the one who heals us of our brokenness and transforms us from glory to glory into the image of your Son. And I pray, Lord, that as we continue 
in our exploration of the Sermon on the Mount, that you would bless, that the Holy Spirit would be here as our guide and our teacher, and that you would transform us further into your likeness. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Your benediction today comes from Romans chapter 15. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another, in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Go in peace.